0: All right, uh, we're in the second week of Advent here and I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. The good news is that there's no more apocalyptic scenarios uh, in this week's text, so that's a step in the right direction. The bad news is that this is the John the Baptist week, which means we're heading to the desert, to the wilderness, uh, which is not necessarily the best setting for like the Yuletide season, but alas, we are Mississippians and we know nothing if not sweating on Christmas, so... We should be okay in the desert, I think. doesn't mean we're not going to wear our sweaters uh, because they're new and we want to bring them out. Even if it is too hot for them, we will wear them because it's the principle of the matter, uh, not the practicality of the temperature. So uh, the second week of Advent leans heavily into the theme of preparation of what John the Baptist's role was in preparing things for Christ. And so um, John's functional purpose uh, in Mark and in the Gospels is to, uh, or in Mark particularly, John's purpose is to literally begin the good news, right? Mark doesn't have a birth narrative. There is no stable or shepherds or any of those kind of things in Mark. This is what Mark says is the beginning of the good news, and that is John the Baptist preparing the way. And so uh, we're going to read Mark 1, 1 through 8, uh, and then we're going to get into um, what is going to be a very old-school sermon in some ways I'm a little bit honestly proud of, to be honest with you. So uh, Mark 1, 1 through 8 says this, in the beginning uh, or the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ... As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So John the Baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the whole Judean region and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The word of God in scripture for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. So there is a lot going on in this text. Uh, there's multiple sermons happening here. And if you begin to drill down into the Greek, uh, there's a whole lot happening just in these first couple verses. Uh, in fact, in, uh, in, in, if you have one of those Bibles that has like footnotes and little commentaries on it, uh, you'll probably notice that just the first few lines have got four or five or six different little footnotes for you to refer to to different like words and things that are going on here. There is a lot happening. Um, Mark is utilizing a whole bunch of very specific terms here, right? Terms identified with Roman culture and Roman empire building and Israel's history. There's all this stuff is getting all mushed together in this place. Uh, the, the good news, uh, euangelion, I think is how you say it. I always mess it up. The Greek, does that work? Did I get a thumbs up from a seminarian? All right. I'm feeling real good now. That's, that's a seminarian amen right there. Um, so... <laughs> And, uh, and it, it, it is the good news. Now, normally, what that term was usually used, we think of it in very spiritual terms in regards to the, the Judeo-Christian history. What that actually meant, that was a thing that Romans used to do. The Romans used to come in, after they conquered a people, they would have a euangelion. They would have announced the good news of the expansion of their kingdom, right? So there was, uh, usually Israel's on the wrong side of the good news because if something's being announced about good news against them, that means they're conquered, right? Uh, or the, the kingdom that, has, that is oppressing them is spreading, and so they... Mark kind of grabs that term and, and utilizes it. And then son of God is what they refer to the emperors as, right? And so he steals that term as well. And then you have all these different Isra- parts of the Israeli history going on here. You have, honestly, it says Isaiah here, but there's actually two different Old Testament passages mushed together here and just kind of used as one. And, then you, and so you have that tie back into the, Israel's own history. And then you have this entire scene that reflects Exodus, Right? Uh, God's people being saved through the water and into the desert to be formed into something new. There is all kinds of things that Mark is reaching and grabbing from all kinds of places to create something here to talk about basically this uh, this new thing that's happening. In fact, even John's strange clothing and cringeworthy diet connect him to Old Testament stories of Elijah and tie him to Israel's past. So all these things meet together in John the Baptist. And the image I've always liked about what John the Baptist is doing here is like uh, that of a playground swing. And on a playground swing, uh, this is something all of us, if you've had kids, have tried to help your kids to figure out. The way you make a swing move is you lean back and you kick forward at the same time, right? And then you lean forward and you kick back. And so you're really kind of going two directions at once in order to create movement. And that's what John is doing here. He is reaching back into the past and he is kicking forward into what God has next at the same time. And so he's creating that momentum of connecting to history and reaching forward to what God is up to now. Right? John embodies all of these things in the biblical narrative. And Mark begins the gospel, again, not with a manger, but with a clear signal that the good news starts with this signal of a new kingdom, a new kind of world. Reimagining the terms that are used to oppress us. Reimagining, incorporating the history of salvation into whatever new salvation God is doing. Man, that'll preach. I could make two or three sermons out of those things, right? And I kind of started down that path this week, but I don't think I want to get into those details this time because as I was studying this passage this week, I was struck more by the forest than the trees. Uh, I kind of wanted to step back and take a larger uh, wide-angle view of everything. I just found myself really interested in those who made the trip to see and hear and follow John because it was no Small thing, right? This is not jumping in your car and heading to your mall. Even in December on Hardy Street. That's not that big a deal, even though it feels like hell on earth. It's not that big a deal. We are talking about a serious commitment here. A commitment to walk, a lot of miles. And every everything I tried to find to pin down an exact distance doesn't work. They're not sure exactly where he was at. Some say one day's walk, some day seven or eight or sixty miles, or you know, there's all kinds of theories about it. But it is outside of town. It is out in the desert. It is away from the world as you know it, right? All to go and see and hear someone who's preaching repentance, which is not exactly the most heartwarming and fuzzy thing that people flock to hear. He's not tickling the ears of people by telling them what they want to hear. He's asking them to repent, to turn from one thing to another. They're just coming out and they're going all this distance so they get to confess Their sins, right? This doesn't sound like an attractional event at all. All of this to see a bug eater who's going to ask you to get baptized in the river and then walk home wet. Something is going on here, right? We don't know much specifically about those who walked and committed to this and listened and responded to John about those individuals. We don't know much about them. We know Jesus does it himself later on. But we don't know much about these folks, but we can be certain about something. We can look at all this and realize that they obviously, these people obviously were ready for something, anything different. They were ready for a change. Remember last week as we talked about those apocalyptic passages, we talked about how the idea of, quote, this too shall pass, of, of things coming to an end is either a promise or a threat depending on where you're standing, right? These are promise people. These are people who are drawn to something, who want something new. They're drawn towards something, uh, towards repentance, towards turning from one thing to another, from life as usual towards something new and hopefully better. They're ready for a change. To some degree or another, you have to be ready for a change to make this trip. Enough to go all the way out and listen to this guy and follow him, right? Now, I'm not sure if you can relate to that or not. Uh, I don't know how you're doing right now. I don't know if you're limping into the end of 2023 or if you are sprinting right now. Maybe you are feeling great and everything is fine or maybe you're banking on a new start in this season. Maybe in January, the new you will finally show up and make that long-awaited appearance Uh, expected for many Januaries, but this is the January when the new you will show up, right? Again, maybe you're doing well, I don't know. But even if you are, I'm going to work off this assumption. We're not meeting in the desert right now, it was not many days journey by foot, but you are here, and if you're here, I'm going to work off the idea that you are at least a little bit interested in kicking into what God has next, right? Um, I mean, it's a pretty easy journey to get here, I don't own any camel hair and I won't eat bugs, but it'd be a lot easier for you to stay home tonight than it would be to come here. So maybe we can look to what John says and to why these people make this journey to think about how we might lean into what God has next. And as I looked at the bold decision of these people to go and see John, I found three things that seemed significant enough for us to consider for ourselves in this season. That's right. I have a three-point sermon. <laughs> and not only do I have a three-point sermon, because I found, out, found myself with three points, I decided to go real old school, And I'm going to make all of them start with the same letter. (laughs) That is a preaching home run for those of you keeping track at home. And you're welcome. It's a Christmas miracle from Michael Dixon. But I do think, I do think there are three elements to John's call, to their response, that could prove, prove a bit of a model for those of us who are ready for what God has next for us. And I hope you are one of those people. First thing, the first path towards preparing for what comes next that I think John offers is. Interruption, which starts with an I. There's going to be three I's in Advent this year. Just you know, the first path towards preparing what com- what comes next that John offers is interruption. If nothing else, John is effective at shaking everyone out of business as usual. There is no way to find John, to listen to John, to respond to John without stepping out of the world as you know it. Sometimes the best thing that can happen to us, is, get us comp- is something that gets us outside of our normal lives, right? Uh, having grown up in the church, and I know a lot of you did, I think this is probably one of the main reasons people benefit from so, so much from things like mission trips, right? A lot of rightful jokes have been made about how much we're actually helping the people we go to sometimes. I know there's been a few roofs I replaced as a college student that were certainly more of a curse than a blessing once the rain came, I'm sure, It can be debatable whether or not I'm really helping those people a ton. Sometimes I'm sure I did. I hope I did. But I always came back with my brain a little bit rewired, right? Maybe I spend some time among those who just live very differently than me, who don't have the things I take for granted or who don't invest in the same things I spend so much time worrying about. Or maybe it's just something that happens on that trip. Or maybe it's not a mission trip at all. Maybe you, you get out into the woods for a while and you go on a hike or you find yourself in some situation that just makes you get outside of your life as usual, some in a more intense and sustained way. Something that short circuits our autopilot, right? <clears> that thing that allows us to uh, allow days and weeks to pass by unconsidered. We all have autopilot repentance is the undoing of the unconsidered life, right? Repentance is the undoing of the unconsidered life. And here those that respond to John leave town. They walk for days. They listen. They get baptized. They reconsider. They repent. Following John's call, these people made an intentional decision to step out of whatever their comforts might have been in their lives whatever they may have been accustomed to in life as usual. And as always seems to happen in those situations, real change occurs for them, and I think it can happen for us. Interruption is important for us to lean into some days. So first one, interruption. Second step in preparation and change for these people is John's profound sense of immediacy. I know it, it's, it's impressive, isn't it? All the eyes here found this great quote from Timothy L. Atkinson-Jones this week. It says this. One thing that seems clear, though, is that the people were passionate about something that would affect them right then and there. This was not a baptism or even an evangelism that pointed towards an afterlife. They were rushing to the wilderness for something that would change their lives in that moment. The good news, then, by extension, might also be something that we can talk about as primarily affecting our communities right here and right now. Immediacy. This sense of immediacy is something that uh, I personally find that I can generally lack in my own life of faith, right? I'm very deeply rooted in the tradition uh, of imagining the results of our faith now in some far and eternal ways, right? Streets of gold and mansions and jewels in the crown, because who... Who doesn't want to have a big, heavy, jeweled crown for the rest of eternity, right? But we talk so much about that. In fact, a lot of the ways we talked about the here and now is like, well, it's just going to kind of stink now, but it's going to be worth it for what comes later. Like, you know, following Jesus now is, is hard, but it'll be worth it for the streets of gold later on. <clears throat> I'm so steeped in that that I often easily lose the truth that there are immediate repercussions for Christ's calling in my life. Christ calling on the way I love and I relate to people, here and now. I do believe God wants goodness and fullness for us right here, right now. I don't know about you, but I can only stay engaged in an endeavor that has no immediate consequences for a very short period of time. Yet this is so often how we as Christians are taught to approach our faith, like it has nothing to do with the here and now like it's a future reality and not a present calling. But our faith is about life change. It is about the here and now. It is in this moment. John's calling to prepare and to repent offers those responding a chance at interruption and a chance to remember the immediacy of what God is doing. And finally, it also offers incarnation. Everything about these scenes with John the Baptist is embodied. It's tactile. It's messy, even. Pack a bag. Put together some food. Put on your hiking sandals, if they had those back then, right? Walk in the sand and in the rocks. Feel the sun on your face and on the back of your neck. Sweat. Listen to the preaching. Get in the water. Nothing about anything that John is doing here is theoretical or disembodied in any way. No, it's all incarnation. It's hands and feet and sweat and dirt and tears, right? This is something else that I will just confess to you that I really need in my life of faith because I was not only brought up to think about Christianity in regards to heaven one day instead of earth today, but I was also taught how to live most of my life of faith between my ears, learn the right things, get the right answers, believe the correct ideas, all basically theoretical and trapped inside my head. That was where the truth was, and that's where the work was to be done. But there is nothing about the story of Christ and definitely nothing about this scene with John that even hints that that is the point of this. The entire premise of the story is that God took flesh and blood and dwelt, dwelt, lived among us. God wept and God bled and God laughed and God lived an actual life and he actually loved actual people. We are not asked by Christ to accept a belief but to relate to an incarnate God and to love embodied neighbors around us. Are you actually physically doing anything because of your faith in Christ? Or it is all some idea that we just hold within us? Yesterday, Lillian and I were true martyrs. We went to Walmart in December. We braved the parking lot. We braved that store. During Christmas, we put our hands on a ton of different kind of toys because we had a uh, first-grade girl from Hawkins that we adopted, as many of you did adopt this year, to buy for Christmas, and we had to make it a good Christmas. She didn't ask for a single thing while we were there. Now, I threatened her a lot, but it was still pretty impressive, I'll be honest with you. And we navigated the store and we looked and we hunted and we put this together and we tried to see is this, is this blanket softer than this one? Would, would this princess be more appealing or that one? This is from the new movie, but this is a classic everyone likes. Well, what if we got the dress to match this? And what if we, I mean, we, we negotiated, we went through it, right? And as much as I would love to rail against consumerism at Christmas time at Walmart, and I probably should to some degree, and I will, I'm sure, at some point, the act yesterday of going and doing, the act of getting our hands on things, the act yesterday that gave us something tangible to do with our own selves, gave a lot of meaning to this particular day of Advent for us. We did something because of Christ. There's no, there, there is almost no good reason to go to Walmart in December, but t- particularly apart from Jesus. Right? I know I keep coming back to the parable from a couple of weeks ago in Matthew 25, but it works here as well as it worked last week too. When the, she- the sheep and the goats are separated and, and they are told you know, how God does or does not recognize them, the thing that separates them is incarnate love. Everything the sheep did that the goats did not do was embodied. It was incarnate. They put food in bellies. They put clothes on back. They visited the lonely and imprisoned. They did these things with their actual lives, hands, feet. It was embodied. It's something we're committed to here. It's one of our core values. It's why Hawkins is such a big part of what we do. It's why we end each service at the table together, handing each other bread and giving each other grapes. It's not the stuff necessarily, it's the act of being at a table together. If our faith does not include our hands and our feet and our mouths, then what are we doing exactly? I'm going long. So let's leave tonight thinking about preparing our own hearts for Christ. Christ. Let's prepare ourselves with the three eyes of Advent, patent pending. If we want to reinvigorate our own faith, maybe we can learn something from John and from those that made the long and difficult journey to be baptized by him. This season, let's lean into Advent's interruption, immediacy, and incarnation. Let us do something, make some decision to short circuit life as usual. Do something, anything to keep you from going through this season unconsidered. It's going to go fast. You've got to make that decision. And remember the immediacy of John's message. The fact that Christ seeks your repentance, your salvation, your redemption, your reconciliation, your healing right here, right now. Not just in some great by and by in some unknown date in the future. Right here, right now. And finally, Remember to always move as God's love always does towards incarnation. Make use of your hands and your feet and your words. If our faith has no flesh to it this season, then something is wrong. Listen to John as we prepare for God's arrival. Because there is no I in Advent. There's three of Let's pray. God, we are grateful. We are grateful that we don't um, gather together. We don't read your scriptures. We don't study and sing and serve together. We don't do all of this for some theoretical idea. We are thankful that you are a God who is with us, that you are a God who took flesh and blood and dwelt among us. You are a God who seeks to change our world here and now, that you are a God who does not want us to live an unconsidered life, but wants to imbue every part, even the most common parts of our life, with meaning and with your love. Now, may we pay attention uh, to the beginning of the good news, to the preparation that comes before the arrival of God incarnate. May we, like the people who went out to the desert to listen and be baptized by John, open ourselves up to these ideas. May we step outside of life as usual. May we remember the immediacy of what you are trying to do. And may we always have a faith that becomes incarnate in this world. That we are thankful that you are a God who is with us and you are a God who is not done with us. We do love you and we ask all these things in your name. Amen.